So this evening, I'd like to start by the Kita Sutta, with a little uh, bigger than usual. What, first I'd like to, to possibly say a few words about using this kind of text. To me, I see it in two different ways. That, personally, I think we have to be careful of not mythologizing the Buddha. That the Buddha is this amazing, heroic figure, and in a way, only what comes out of his mouth is like golden. And everybody else, what they speak is a little kind of, you know, second rate. You know, we can easily fall into that. Oh, if it's a Buddha, it's fantastic. If it's anybody else, I don't know about that. And as Stephen pointed out, very likely what comes to us is actually more from the Buddha and other people who followed him. And it would be like saying, you know, do I consider what the Dalai Lama say inspiring? Do I consider what Thich Nhat Hanh say beneficial? So I think it's, it's important to see that when I look at the text, I see them more, not that they're sacred and the Buddha said it, so it's, everything is fantastic, but that people practiced, and through the practice at that time, in a way they created this corpus. And what some of this corpus of text has to say can be interesting. <laughs> At the same time, we are quite selective. <laughs> I mean, the numerical discourse has thousands of discourse, and I'm very selective in what I choose, which generally most people are. Then there is another aspect, and what I look at, what I find interesting is, in a way, our encounter with the text. First, you have the translation of the text, then you have different translations. But once that's done, how can I understand this text? How can this text speak to me, to my condition now? And so that's the way I present it to you. And I'm kind of trying to present things which I found, mm, yes, this could say a little something to us right now. How can we understand it? How can it be helpful? So this text, the Tita Sutta, which is about the sectarians, is basically the Buddha actually showing what is one of the main message of this tradition. And so what he's doing here is kind of criticizing three other sects. And why he criticizes them is because they may remain stuck in inaction. So his teaching is not about inaction. His teaching is about action, about doing something, cultivating something. So the sectarian are the one who think either whatever a person experiences, pleasant, painful, neither pleasant nor painful, that is all caused by what was done in the past or that is all caused by a supreme being, act of creation, or 
that is all without causes and without condition. Then he says, if you believe any one of these things, then you're basically believing a person is a killer of living beings because of what was done in the past, or is a killer of living beings because of God, or is a killer of living beings without any cause and condition. But then, if you do that, you can't pin down what should or should not be done. And then you dwell bewildered and unprotected. And more than that, it stops you from acting. So in a way, that's one thing. It says, you know, be careful. You do not want to remain stuck in inaction. So this is back to ethics. Basically, what he's saying is that look at the causes and conditions for your action and also the result and the effect of your action on others. That's really what here he's talking about. And what, in a way, he's criticizing this other position. But then... One, I mean, he gives many different things, but one of the things he says that we can do as a practice, which is different from those, is seeing a form with the eye. One explores form that can act as a basis for happiness or for unhappiness or the basis for equanimity. And then the same with the sound, with the smell, with the taste, with the physical sensation, with the thought. So this is interesting. Like you say, one of the practices is actually to be aware when we're in contact with something, what is a feeling tone? And how are we with the feeling tone? And so this is what I like to look at tonight, the feeling tones, what is also called Vedana. But before that, I want to, to read... Again, two very short texts. One is Agati Sutta, which is called Of Course. Of Course, Of OFF, so that you kind of going at a tangent. So there are four ways of going Of Course. One goes Of Course through desire, through aversion, through delusion, and through fear. And personally, I feel why we are not ethical is generally in reaction to feeling tone, to Vedana. And it's actually about what he's talking about right there. That, you know, we experience a feeling tone, and if we react automatically to the feeling tone, then often, as he says, we can go off course, and we can be harmful to ourselves, and to others. Then I wanted to leave you with uh, an image. As I said, he often has very good image. And this one is a lekasuta, is inscription. And he says, there are three types of individual existing in the world. One is like an inscription in rock. One like an inscription in soil and one like an inscription in water. And that's what he says. There is a case where you have a certain individual who is often angered, 
and his anger stay with him a long time, just as an inscription is not quickly effaced by wind or water and lasts a long time. Then you have an, an individual who is often anger, angered, but his anger doesn't stay with him a long time, just as an inscription in soil is quickly effaced by wind or water and doesn't last a long time. And then you have the last one. And that person, when spoken to roughly, harshly, in an unpleasing manner, is nevertheless congenial, companionable, and courteous. Just as an inscription in water immediately disappears and doesn't last a long time. So I leave you with this. And it seems to me that actually it's not necessarily that we are just a certain type of individual. I think at times we are like rocks. At times we are like soil. And at times, we are like water. I think it's, it very much depends on many different conditions about why something happened and we can creatively engage with it and why something happened and we kind of hold on to it and we fix it and we, in a way, permanentize it. So, Vedana, so first I need to explain a little. So, Vedana means feeling tone. So, it basically means the basic contact. You see something, you hear something, you taste something, and upon that contact, you get a certain hedonic tone. Either pleasant, unpleasant, neither pleasant nor Unpleasant, we'll call it neutral. And so it's kind of like a given. The Buddha says this is something which is fairly automatic and it's nearly like a given. But what I think is very important to see with uh, feeling tone is that they're not. Often we have the idea that the feeling tone, the pleasantness, unpleasantness, neutral, is in the thing itself. Oh, that's a terrible sir. Oh, this is an awful view. So, like, it's in the view. It's in the sound. But what the Buddha is saying, it's constructed out of our inner condition meeting outer condition. For example, you might have noticed, uh, time to time we hear, I think, either a pigeon or a turtle dove. I'm not sure which type is around here. So he kind of does it thing. And I mean, personally, I just hear a dove, you know, doing his little cooing. And that's it. But I have a friend. He lives in Rome. And he's a music composer. And he really finds the pigeon disturbing. Because he says their tune is problematic. <laughs> the way the tune of their cooing, the pitch of their cooing, stops him from being able to do his music properly. I mean, I don't have this experience. <laughs> so 
is due to different things. We're going to come into contact and we're going to have pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, depending, it, it's constructed by us, constructed by our experience, tendencies, specialization, etc., etc. I mean, personally, I see a Korean character and I think, mm, a Korean character. I mean, you see the thing, you see black on white, and you think, what's that? You know, I have a pleasant feeling tone, you have a more undescript, neutral feeling tone. Again, with music, you know, you might listen to some piece of music, somebody says, this is so lovely, you must listen to it, and you're sitting there, they like this, you know? You know, so you have the same music and you really don't have the same tone. So, this uh, Vedana, the feeling tone, is constructed. But it's kind of fairly given that it's fairly fast. It's fairly fast. And so this feeling tone comes through the senses. As soon as we contact with something, there is generally a feeling tone. And then you could have actually two very different feeling tones. I mean, you could listen to a bird, and it's very pleasant, and you could have a pain in the knee, and that's unpleasant. So, I mean, there are lots of feeling tone at any given moment. At the same time, it's very important to see that generally on a retreat, not much is going on, and so the one we might be more uh, in contact with is what I would call neutral feeling tone, what is called equanimity kind of nothing is happening to. And often we perceive this as I am unfeeling or even worse, this is boring. Mm-hmm. You know? And so in a way, I feel what a, a meditation retreat is a great opportunity to be more aware of the feeling tone and actually to start to have a different relationship with a neutral feeling tone which actually can be a very peaceful, restful feeling tone. As a nun in ancient time, at the time of the Buddha said, if you understand neutral feeling tone, it becomes pleasant. If you don't understand it, it becomes unpleasant. That's what is interesting with neutral. I mean, you can just be with the neutral and just be with it, and then it can veer to ah, this is peaceful, or we can veer to, this is boring. So just to see that, there is that interesting thing with the neutral feeling tone. Personally, I think it is not easy. Tomorrow that's what we'll do, or that's what I'll suggest we do as a theme, is be aware of the feeling tones. And it's not easy to be aware of them. It took me a long time to be aware of them. Because I would sit in meditation and look, where is this feeling tone? And it finally hit me one day that what I was not finding was the fact that I was finding the neutral feeling tone. So they, just to see that, on retreat, generally, not much is going on. But then we can see, when we go outside, we see a flower, or we hear a bird, or we eat something which tastes nice, then we can see the difference. Something is more pleasant, something is more unpleasant, or when we have a discomfort when we sit. So then, personally, I think it's really important to 
be aware of the influence of the feeling tone on what we do because they're actually very influential, although they seem so intangible. Recently, I had this experience where I uh, took my mother shopping for sale with my sisters, and we had such a nice time. It all went very well, so lots of very pleasant feeling tone. And I come back home with my mother, and it was such a good feeling tone, a little excitement coming Let's rearrange your whole wardrobe, your whole cupboard. And my mother is like, oh, you know, and I'm all excited. And then I realize this is not a good idea, so I have to stop this, and, you know, okay. And then I, I leave upstairs, so I go upstairs. And then later on, I speak to Stephen, and, and I'm thinking, but I'm speaking to him in a strange tone. Very strange tone, very a little cold, unfriendly, irritable. And I thought, what's going on? I mean, he had not done anything whatsoever. <laughs> so I thought, what's going on here? And then I realized that because the feeling, pleasant feeling tone, quickly changed to unpleasant feeling tone, and then, and that's what the problem is with unpleasant feeling tone, it seeps to other things. So you might have an unpleasant feeling tone because of this, and then you spread it over there. And that's why I think it's so important to be aware of that, to be aware of the different tones, to be aware of what it, how it impacts us, how it moves us, because we react to them very fast. And I think that's why, in a way, ethics is often about, is kind of helping us to kind of like not be so impulsive with the feeling tone. For example, if we take one of the main precepts, which is do not kill, basically do not harm. When someone kills somebody or when somebody harms somebody, why is that? Most of the time it's because they're experiencing because of that person or they feel they're experiencing because of that person, an unpleasant feeling tone. And because they don't want to have this unpleasant feeling tone, then they want to get rid of the person who created. And that's what often people kill people. It's because of that. They, have this, they, they can't stand it. And so they try to... I mean, Stephen, for many years, was a Buddhist chaplain in the jail on the other side of the village. And he met many people who were really nice, friendly people. But they have this very difficult impulse when somebody slandered them or looked at them funny or whatever. They would just, they, you know, the feeling tone would make them go into a rage and get killed a person. And then they ended up in jail. And so now there is a lot of work done, actually, on how can people who have this quick, impulsive reaction to negative feeling tone? How can they learn to not be so impulsive with it? Then you have the other thing. For example, do not steal. I mean, why, do we, why would we take something that does not belong to us? Not because we think, oh, it doesn't matter. We think, mm, I want this, you know? 
you have this pleasant feeling tone when you see the thing and you want it and you're going to get it. So it's kind of being aware of that. I mean, this was possibly my first insight when I was 18 years old and living in England. And I used to steal spiritual books from spiritual <laughs> bookshops. <laughs> so I would go to spiritual bookshop, I would see the spiritual books, I would have pleasant feeling tone and decide I would uh, take them without paying for them. Until reading the books, I realized maybe it's a bad idea. <laughs> and then my solution was actually a very Buddhist solution. My solution, one of the solutions could have been to pay for them, but I was not going to go there. So my solution was actually not to go to the shop. So then I would not be in contact, and then I would not have the feeling to, and would not have the temptation. I mean, I did not think it that way then, but I think that's what happened. And so in a way, that's what, why is because of that pleasure. I want this. I mean, it's the same with the third one. The third one is to be careful with our sexuality, to not hurt people with our sexuality. And so when, again, people hurt others through sexuality, generally, it's not because they think, poor, I have nothing better to do, let's do this. No, generally they have, not all the time, but some of the time they want this pleasant feeling tone that they really want it. And then they discard people's right or whatever. So that's what happened. So that's why I think it's so important to be aware what happened when there is a feeling tone. What do we do? So if there is a pleasant feeling tone, Generally, I want more. I want more. I want to repeat it. I want it to continue. I mean, you have a really nice weekend with friends. Wonderful weekend with friends. They leave the house. At the door, you say, let's do this again. And basically, we're saying, let's reproduce the exact same pleasant feeling tone. That's what we're basically saying. I'm not saying you can't have a nice, pleasant feeling tone, but I'm saying you cannot reproduce exactly the same. But often that's what we do. We have had a nice experience and we try to reproduce it. Sometimes it works, sometimes it does not. Once I had, um, I was 10 years and learning Korea. I come back to France and I went to eat couscous. And it was such an amazing couscous, the best couscous in the universe. <laughs> Feeling tone really high, really pleasant. And what do I do? The next day I go to have the same, exactly the same. And actually the feeling tone was just, before it was number nine, then it was number one. I thought, what's the matter? It's exactly the same place, the same time, the same thing. <laughs> because... This is one thing we have to be careful of grasping at newness, of a new experience. Give us very pleasant feeling too. And then we want exactly the same. Same thing happened with meditation experiences. You have a meditation experience the first time and it's amazing, really pleasant. And then you want to reproduce it, but it's pleasant in comparison to before where you did not have it. 
I think newness often has a big part of pleasant feeling tone. So when we want to repeat it, it's not new. You might not have the same. So we want it to continue, we want it to repeat itself. So it doesn't mean, I mean, the Buddha is not saying don't have pleasant feeling tone. He thinks it's a good idea to experience pleasant feeling tone. Well, he thinks it's actually, it uplifts us. It must make us more happy. And that can really be helpful in life and also in the practice. For example, with concentration, to have pleasant feeling tone generally seen as really helpful for concentration. But the thing is the difference between appreciating pleasant feeling tone and grasping at it. So this is the thing. Can I be very aware of pleasant feeling tone? Personally, I think it's very important that we, when we find we pleasant feeling tone to be really know it in our whole body and mind. So we can really, in a way, know it. Know that we're not always in pain or have difficulty. But we can really also feel happiness and joy, love, etc. But to know that pleasant feeling tone also will pass. Like all things, they come and they go. And they come again and they go again. Then you have, you could nearly say the opposite, unpleasant feeling tone. And unpleasant feeling tone, we really don't like them. We have a very quick reaction of wanting to push away. I don't want it. I don't like it. Either about something within ourselves, either something without, is, I don't want it. But the problem is what I was showing yesterday. If you don't want something, if you push something, you're going to amplify it. So actually you're going to make things worse. So how can we... I mean, at times we have unpleasant feeling tone, physical, mental, emotional, relational. This is part of life. But that the question is, do I grasp at them and then we'll amplify the effect? Or do I creatively engage? when I experience unpleasant feeling too. And this is something you can really play a little during the retreat with the sensations. Today we were aware of sensations. And in a way, just look. Just look. You have an unpleasant sensation. What do you do with it? Can I creatively engage with it? Can I in a way go inside it? I mean, I often have had experience with, when I sit in meditation, sometimes there is some pain. And the difference between thinking, this is terrible, this is terrible, to going inside the sensation and just feeling it moving, changing, is such a different experience. So this is something, I'm not saying we can always do it, because I think we require a certain energy, a certain stability, a certain openness to be able to do that. But I think it's interesting to explore it. That also unpleasant feeling tone will change. At some point, they will change. They too. And as the nun says, when the unpleasant feeling tone stops, 
generally it becomes pleasant. And this is something you experience very likely every time I ring the bell. Ah. This is an easy way to experience pleasant feeling too. So it's how can that I think is very much about I think pleasant feeling tone is about appreciation and also about creative engagement. But I think unpleasant feeling tone to really first be aware of it. And creatively engagement is really to know what is the effect on us. Because often what happens, unpleasant feeling tone generally seeps very quickly, spreads, spreads. And also we often go into association with past unpleasant feeling tone very fast. And that's what we have to be very careful about. Can I just stay with the unpleasant feeling tone now, what's right now? instead of going into associative unpleasant feeling talk, either going into the past, either going into the future. Then you have the neutral one. And again, I would uh, encourage you, because that's what you're going to encounter a lot as we sit, as we walk, in this very quiet and relatively calm place. I mean, most of the time, it will be relatively neutral. Not much will be going on. And so, can we change our relationship to it? Because with the feeling tones, I have the impression that our baseline often is pleasant number five. So that's the baseline. So everything up is pleasant, everything down is unpleasant. But if the baseline is neutral, I can go 10 up and I have less to go down. I think this is what is interesting to notice. What is my baseline? What is it I think is neutral? Because, because again, if you have a bad relationship with neutral, then it's gone into the unpleasant feeling tone. So in a way, can we... I mean, this is something personally was a great gift as I practiced to just realize, oh, nothing is happening. Nothing needs to happen right now. I can just rest. I'm not saying we need to rest all the time. But I think time to time we need to rest. We need just to be in peace with the moment right now, without having to add anything, do anything. And so I think to just learn to relax in the neutral feeling tone, I think can be very restful, very helpful. So that's what uh, I'll talk a little more about how to do this tomorrow in the instruction. And so what i like to look at now is a little about what the Buddha was talking in the court, a little bit about anger and a little bit about fear. And so to see, so you have contact, you have feeling tones, which is a basic level, and then from that, very quickly, you would have what I would call emotional sensation. This is my own vocabulary, so don't try to find this in books. I think the psychologists have some very specific term for all this. But I rather just talk about emotional sensation. 
So we, we could call it feeling, just feeling. But I'm, I am using the word emotional sensation to show that often we have this idea that feeling is kind of like it jumps on you, like feeling just kind of attack you nearly. You have the, you know, you find it suddenly, <gasps> you feel something very strongly. And then the question is that it's not floating about ready to get us. It's a very physical sensation. So what we experience actually are emotional sensation. Emotional sensation in the body of anger, of fear, of anxiety, sadness, happiness, joy, whatever it is. And but generally what we do is that we go quickly into the meaning of the feeling. And then quickly into anger, and I'm angry because of that. Often we go into the story of it, and then we go also into the association with it. We also start to magnify. And I think what we can do on a meditation retreat and also in daily life is learn to be more aware of the initial emotional sensation instead of jumping so fast in the meaning of it to actually how does it feel in my body? Is it heavy? Is it agitated? How does it feel here? Is it changing? Is it moving? So, because I feel we, with our emotions, we quickly go into abstraction. And I think to really feel it here. And I think if, for example, we take anger, I would say that anger is a creative emotional function of the organism. So it's not bad or good per se. It's a function of the organism. And I think the function is to make us act because it's a fiery emotion and so it gives us energy and generally makes us do something, act, fight, flee, whatever it is when there is. So anger is a reaction, it's an explosion. And so the function, I mean, I think it has a function. But then it becomes habituated, it becomes automatic, and then it becomes what I would call a disturbing emotion. And so when we're angry, often we lose it because it's very explosive. And what is interesting, personally, I felt my breakthrough with this because I have a little of a, uh, I used to have a fiery temperament, was actually when one day I was really upset. And instead of going into the meaning, the story, etc., I kind of really went inside my body. I really went inside the experience of it. And the experience was that I was shaking. I was like this. And I realized, hey, this is painful. And I am doing this to myself. Nobody is doing this to me. And as soon as I saw, in a way, dukkha and the origin of dukkha, I let it go. Why would I do this to myself? It just went through the seeing, through the vipassana. But I needed the stability to go and look at it in that way. And then I went into the mind. 
And in the mind, I was going, I am right, she is wrong, I am right, she is wrong. And I thought, wait a minute. She must be thinking exactly the same, but the opposite way. And I could see we were both right and wrong. And again, it went. So to me, that's why, in a way, we have to be careful not to think that spirituality, meditation, Buddhism is about stopping emotion so that we become automaton and feel nothing. That's not the idea. The idea is to bring back everything, thought, feeling, sensation, to its creative functioning. And also, I think with um, anger, to see it's a natural, it's a natural reaction. And then the question is not so much that you want to eradicate anger. But as the Buddha says, if you're angry in a certain way, it takes you off course. Because often when you're angry, you forget wisdom, you forget compassion. So then the thing is, how can I be creatively engaged with my emotion? How can I, in a way, notice disturbing emotion? And to me, that's the thing. To say, oh, I am a terrible Buddhist person, I get angry. I mean, I think that's not what this is about. But this is about the fact that we are not angry all the time. We're generally angry because of certain conditions. And generally there are also triggers and contributing factors. And then it becomes a place of exploration. If I have a tendency to be angry, what happens? How do I become angry? What are the triggers? What are the conditions? What is a contributing factor? And to me, that's what I would call creative engagement. So it's not stopping it. It's actually engaging with it, trying to explore, understand it. And through that, actually... It diminishes. And generally the intensity diminishes, the duration also will diminish. But it doesn't mean we'll, you will never be angry ever again. But I think you have to be very careful with that. Even the Buddha got angry after his great enlightenment. And I still remember my, uh, my teacher, Master Kuzan going around the temple with a stick, saying, where is my attendant? Obviously, the attendant must have done something which was not right. Don't know what he did. And Master Cousin was looking for him because he had fleed. <laughs> so obviously he was not, oh, this is great, you know. So it's not about stopping something. I think it's about understanding something. But then what I think is important, and that's where the meditation can be, the awareness can help us, is to notice there are different levels to the emotion. Light, habitual, and intense. And generally we try to work with it when it's intense. And I would say it's a bit late. When it's intense, you're caught in it. But if you notice more when it's light, you know, when you're a little impatient, you're kind of 
This is interesting. You know, you can be calm, and then you, like that. A little impatient. It's very, it's very physical. And to notice, how does it feel to be impatient? To explore that. Or when you are in what I would call the habitual level, when you become irritable, and everything is irritated. Who are they? Why are they doing this? I would never do this. Just notice it. And at other time, you're not like that. So we're knowing how it works. Then you have fear. And I find that very interesting that the, the Buddha sees fear as something that gets us off course. And this was one of the first thing that he worked on. And I think this is, was one of his first insights, that he did not have to give in the fear. Because there is a passage before the awakening where he's trying to meditate in the forest. And he tries to meditate in the forest and he can't meditate because he's so anxious. And he's anxious in case there are beasts, he's anxious in case there are robbers, he's anxious He's anxious. And so finally he sees himself being anxious. So he's sitting there trying to meditate and he's so anxious. And then he sees himself, body and mind being anxious, and he says, hey, why am I anxious? Why am I overtaken by this stuff? And he starts to question it. And he goes. And I think that's where he started to see, oh, I can do something about this. So fear, again, fear is a survival mechanism. Fear is something which uh, helps us to be careful. Basically, it's about danger, that we, we know that there is danger and that we become careful. So it has a very creative function. It's very important to have fear. But then when fear becomes more automatic, more habitual, then fear is very anxiety-producing, but also paralyzing. It's very, ah! And it really kind of stop people from acting. When I was many years ago in South Africa, at the end of this retreat, like we will do at the end of this one, we had a little chat, you know, everybody was sharing things. And one of the things that they were sharing was, hey, any tips about dealing with fear when you are in South Africa and when you live in Johannesburg? And there was this little young woman who piped up. She said, oh, I have a tip. And she said before she was so anxious for months she could not get out of her house. She could not. She was paralyzed by fear. And then she discovered Thich Nhat Hanh teaching and Thich Nhat Hanh meditation and the breath meditation. And after just a few weeks of just being aware of the breath, it really, in a way, relaxed her fear. And so what she would do is she would do the breathing meditation for about 30 minutes. And then she would feel more calm. And then she would take her car, go to the supermarket, and come back. <laughs> but at least she could get out of the house. So it had really, in a way, brought the fear down. 
So fear is actually, I think, it's a natural mechanism. But I think nowadays in our uh, modern society, which are generally fairly safe, unless you go to a dangerous place, what are we fearful about? And so in a way, how does it feel inside the body? But what are we doing with the mind? And a lot of the time, we are afraid in advance. So right now we find, but we are actually frightening ourselves. So we're actually fear of the future instead of being okay now. And this is something I would really recommend for you to, and that's where the questioning meditation might be helpful. If you are afraid, is this true? Is this true that you have good reason to be afraid? I mean, once, many years ago, I was somewhere and somebody was kind of uh, attacking me. And so my first reaction was, to be paralyzed, next reaction was to jump out of the window, but I was on the third floor, so I thought it was not a good <laughs> idea. And my third one was to shout, help, help, and then somebody came to help me, and I was fine. But I can also remember that when I was in Korea, and we had to go outside to the toilet at night, I was terrified. I was really frightened. I would go out, and I would feel... There is this guy with a knife behind me. He's going to get me. My heart would race. I would like close to a heart attack. And, and so finally I was really... So I went to see Master Cousin. I said, what can I do? I'm so frightened. And he said, ask the question, what is this? What is it? And I thought it would be like magic. It would protect me from the bad guys out there. So I would go out. What is this? What is this? What is this? And it worked very quickly that suddenly I realized I was in the middle of nowhere in the mountain in Korea. Who would know about me to come and get me? <laughs> so back to reality, back to experience. What is going on? So again, to explore, to creatively engage with our fear. Is it fear now? Or is it fear in the future? I don't need it. So, that's what I want you to say today. Are there any questions or comments? Yes. Um, <clears throat> when you're talking about anger, um, you suggested that could actually be useful sometimes to <coughs> make us act. But uh, what about fear? Can that be useful? Can that also make us act? Or is that just... No, I, f I think fear can is useful too. But I'm not sure generally it does not make us act. But I think it makes us be careful. I think personally I would see the function of fear it is to make us a little careful, to kind of, is this dangerous or not? I think that's his function, in a way to protect the organism <coughs> so that we don't, we don't do things which are a bit too dangerous. That, that's where I would see the function of fear. 
But yeah, I mean, you see, we can act out of fear, but often we can act out of fear in a way which is not wise, which will be dangerous to ourselves, dangerous to others. But I think there is a kind of a good creative functioning to fear, to just be careful for ourselves, for others. I, mean, I see that a lot with mothers. When the mother says to the child, don't cross the road. <laughs> I mean, she's fearful for the child for good reason. Yes. Um, so I go now as well and occasionally there are quite narrow bits with quite a hefty drop that could actually kill you if you slipped and the more I go the more frightened I get and I get paralysed by it but that is an actual genuine fear but that reaction isn't helping me at all because it makes me stiff it makes me lose my balance which is the opposite of what I need yeah but this is um You see, it's an organism saying, this is a bad idea. <laughs> you see, and so what is interesting here is that the organism doesn't seem to get used to the idea. Because with my knees, I used to do this kind of, you know, jumping into nets and doing things in trees, you know, that you do nowadays, you know. And, and what I saw once we did, you know, the mega one, the thousand one, you know, and so you jump three meters fine, you jump five meters fine, and then you have to jump, I don't know, seven, ten meters. And my body was saying, no way, but I had to do it because the little one wanted me to do it. So I said, all right, let's go. So I forced my mind, forced my body to jump in the net. Then I got to the platform, and the platform... <laughs> and my mind was fine, but my body was saying, Phew. But then the second time I did it, like two weeks later, when I got to the platform, I was fine. My body saying, okay, you want to do this? Not dangerous, never mind. So I don't know, you know... <laughs> about that. I mean, if you want to continue, of course, if you want to continue to walk in these things, I think what's happening, possibly, it's a thought. The first time you do it, you think, yeah, yeah, it's fine. And then possibly, you see, possibly, there is a little, what I would call, negative feeling tone being created, which then might give rise to some thought, but this is dangerous, you know? This is very dangerous. So then the question is, if you want to continue to do this, can you not kind of like, it's kind of being aware of the feeling. I mean, that's what people who do this kind of dangerous thing. Generally, the thing is to go back to the breath, try to be with the body, try to not give in the thought. But you have the, I mean, you have a bit of like chemistry going on with the adrenaline, which... You know, so it's kind of working with that, working with that. Yes? The fear that you talk about that you had at night in Korea, did it, uh, do you mean it, it, went, it went away? Like you, you let go of it and it didn't come back? Or it was just like you knew that it was irrational because the, there wouldn't be anyone um, coming after you in the mountain, which helped you to kind of control your fear, but it still was there? Uh, both, in terms that the fear really went. But the fear went because 
I was in the experience. That's what I mean. Like when you become distracted and then you amplify and doing the question helped me not to amplify. So then the fear was really not the same. And then if you had the insight that there is nobody there. So then the fear really, I mean, then you still have a bit of fear because I think it's natural to have a bit of fear at night. But nothing like it was before. So now it's just kind of what I would call like a caring, uh, a careful mechanism. So if I am at night, I feel a, a t- <coughs> tiny bit, but very much like if I, I am aware of where I am, generally it kind of goes. If it's a little dangerous place, then it's a little there. If it's not a dangerous place, then it just goes. No, no, it really went. But I think what went was the amplifying mechanism. That I think what goes. So as soon as you don't amplify, yes, you're a little kind of concern. It's dark. But you're not creating this huge abstract thing. And also, you have to see that generally we fear you are in the future or in abstraction. And in abstraction, your creative potential cannot do anything. That's why often we're afraid of things. And so when we're afraid of them in advance, it's very frightening. But when we are in them, often it's not so frightening. Because in the moment, we generally creatively engage with what's going on. But in abstraction, we can really frighten ourselves. Very much so. And you can, you know, like, we, we can, I think fear is very amplifying, very amplifying. So I think if the amplifying goes, then actually it's just you have a little funny feeling because you are in the dark. And that's it. So yeah, no, it really went. So I never had a heart attack. <laughs> I, I'm very, I was very afraid of, of flying earlier, and then somehow I had to fly often, and that helped me to get um, not over the fear, but to control it. But still, sometimes I discover like if I have it under control, like I can book my flight, so I can choose which airline I can fly with. I feel better. Like it's kind of. Okay, did everything I could, and then it's fake or something if the plane crashes. But if I don't have the control over it, and I have to take a flight that someone else booked for me, the, the, the fear comes back like it paralyzes me. Like I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm flying like so many times, and I'm not afraid. And why am I afraid again then? Because I know it's irrational. I mean, yeah, but it can happen also when I drive a car or something like that, but... I can't control it then, so what can I do about that? Okay, so that, then it's uh, a creative engagement. You have to see, uh, you're starting to see what are the conditions, what is the trigger, what is a contributing factor, how do I feel, how do I feel inside. So it's really all that, plus generally if we develop more stability. If you develop more stability, then you, you can still have the little here, but they won't spread to the whole organism. That's in a way what we're doing with the meditation. Is actually now, it's kind of like nearly like a poison. Anger or fear is like a poison and it's poisoned the whole organism. And then even outside of the organism, you nearly feel. When here what we're building is actually a stability which 
enable you to still have the fear, but the fear does not control you. And so you have the fear, you feel funny, but it does not spread because you have kind of, it's nearly like kind of some ground of stability. But that takes some time. I mean, something that we cultivate. And I think each of us find creative ways to engage with our different fears. And the meditation hopefully will give us more help with it. Okay, we have to stop here to do a little walking meditation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.